All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and we're going to we're going to dive into our talk this this morning. A few weeks ago, we had looked at uh, the first chapter of the Song of Solomon, and we explored the question about well, what is it about? And we saw a few things there that suggest that it deals largely with the sanctuary. Now, for those of you that are that weren't here, but might like to, to catch up, I'm going to provide just a, a very brief review of just some of the main points, and then we'll, we'll go in a little bit further into the song. And today, uh, after we do a little bit of review, I've entitled this Learning the Lyrics. The Song of Solomon is supposed to be the greatest song, so it'd be kind of nice to know what, what's it about. So uh, to begin, in verse 1, it says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon. Or Solomon's, excuse me. And he did compose this song. But when we say Song of Songs, it's just like Holy of Holy or Lords of Lords or any of these expressions. It means what? Yeah, the best, the chiefest, the greatest. So it's the, the greatest of all songs. So it seems like it might be worth, worth studying. And since I think most of us agree this is a book that's not well understood, it might, be, it might be helpful in the last days to consider and see if God can help us. When we went down to verse 5, we noticed it says, this is the, the, um, the bride speaking here. She says, I am black, but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. And then she says, how black and how comely? As the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. And we, we looked at a few verses to help explain that, but the gist of it was when it talks about curtains and Solomon, it's not too hard to conclude that that might be dealing with the sanctuary. There are curtains in the sanctuary there. Uh, in the prior verse, in verse 4, it says that the king has brought me into his chambers. And that may or may not suggest something to you, but a few verses in the Bible help to, to open that up. In Judges, it speaks about Samson. And uh, Samson said, I'm going to go into my wife into the chamber. I think that makes it pretty clear what room is in view right there. And again, in Joel 2.16, talking about God uh, near the end, the end of time and his people, it says, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Okay. So would you say that the chamber sounds like the bedroom? Is that fair? I think that's fairly clear. We also noticed in verse 12 of the first chapter, it speaks about the king being in the area round about. That's my own translation there. That's a very curious expression. What in the world does that mean? Well, what we do is we just go in the Bible. Ask the, go to your computer and say, okay, where is this word found? And lo and behold, in 1 Kings 6.29, talking all about the preparations for Solomon's temple. It says that Solomon carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubs, palm trees, open flowers within and without. Still might seem curious to you, but this expression is in a sanctuary context. That's the point. And since Solomon wrote the song and he built the temple, that suggests very highly that, yes, this is talking about the same thing. And then finally, the last verse of chapter 1 of Song of Solomon mentions that the beams of our house are cedar and are rafters of fir. 
And it might seem like just some sort of incidental detail, and you're thinking, well, okay, you're telling me what you built it out of, but does that really matter? But by telling us that right there, this is a dead giveaway about what he's talking about. The house is this one right here. Again, Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 6.15. It says, he, Solomon, built the walls of the house within with boards of cedar, and he covered the floor of the house with planks of fir. Lots of details there that we have not covered, but we're just trying to, to show just enough to suggest that the song keeps referring to the sanctuary, and so to properly understand it, if we have that mindset, if we have that lens that we filter things through, we can begin to make sense out of it. And I think that's, that's needed because this is a difficult book of the Bible. And it might also suggest why, uh, if you've ever heard, maybe read things by who knows who out there, maybe not within our own ranks, you might get all kinds of ideas and some that don't seem to make a lot of sense. But guess what? As a people, we are the only people on earth that really present the sanctuary and what it means to us living in the last days. If you don't have that mindset, there's no hope of understanding the song correctly. Now, if you do, you still need the Holy Spirit to enlighten you to get it correct, but at least you're, you're coming at the right angle. We also noticed uh, one other verse here in, in chapter 1. The bride says she describes her beloved, this would be Solomon, as a cluster of camphor. And when I was here a few weeks ago, I asked the question, does anybody know what camphor is? Now, at that time, it didn't seem to get much of a response. Uh, if you were not here before, would anybody like to hazard a guess as to what camphor is? Has anybody ever heard of camphor other than in this verse? Okay. <laughs> well, it, it is a, it's a botanical. Now, some of the literature out there will suggest to you it's a henna blossom. To me, I looked at that and said, okay, very well. I, I, under, I know what a blossom is. I have no idea what henna is. So it still doesn't help me out that much. So then I said, okay, let's forget all the books. Let's just... Let's see what the Hebrew word is. Let's just trace it to the Bible. And lo and behold, the Bible explains itself. And this is so interesting and so much easier to understand. It's the same word translated atonement. Now, why would you describe atonement as a plant? I'm not prepared to answer that. But I do know, does atonement fit with the sanctuary? It, that's what the whole sanctuary is about. From cross to the end of the judgment, it's atonement. And this word here, referring to some sort of plant, you will find it in Exodus 25, 17, the so-called mercy seed, it really literally is the atonement lid, modern translations will capture that detail, was made of pure gold. Genesis 6, 14, referring to the ark. I don't know if you've looked at Noah's ark. There's a fascinating study for you. Every detail of it suggests it was a floating, protective sanctuary. I'll just leave you to study that out. But they were to pitch it in and out with, it's the same word here, that word pitch. The word pitch is atonement. That's interesting. What sealed the ark, what made it watertight, it was atonement. And that's exactly what's going to seal us in the end, Jesus' work of atonement, right? Again, it may seem like a curious expression, but you hopefully you can kind of get the broad idea here. 
Also in 1 John 2, 2, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Again, not a word that most of us use on a daily basis. Just go trace it out through the Bible and you find out, oh, it's the same word that's translated atonement, which is better understood. So Jesus in Song of Solomon 114 is described as a cluster of atonement, but he is atonement. So there we go. Hopefully that sheds a little bit of light, no doubt some questions, but hopefully that gives you some broad stroke understanding of what's going on here. Now, the book Song of Solomon is eight chapters. We just looked at a few ideas, a few little details in chapter one, but it kind of begs the question, what's the rest of the book about? Is it going to be painful to go through all the details? Well, if we were to look at them up here, it probably would be, and you'd be thinking, oh dear, the day is dragging on. We're not going to do that. Again, we're just going to catch just a few to see if we can get kind of the... We're going to try to determine what forest we're looking at, and not every tree in the forest, as we put it that way. Here's something to kind of guide our understanding. The book Great Controversy, page 425, says this. Those who are living upon the earth, when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above, are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a what? Without a mediator. There's a solemn thought, right? Their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. It continues, through the grace of God and their own diligent effort. By the way, that does not mean that it's partly of God and partly of us. It simply means that God expects us to do that which we can do. We cooperate with him, and he does everything that we cannot do. It's still all his credit, but we are to cooperate. Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary. By the way, a penitent believer. What is a penitent believer? That's right, a believer who repents. While they are being removed from the sanctuary, there is to be a special work of purification of putting away of sin among God's people upon earth. This work is more clearly presented in the messages of Revelation 14, the three angels' messages. Now, Here's where we're going to make the connection with the book Song of Solomon. It says, when this work shall have been accomplished, the followers of Christ will be ready for his appearing. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Malachi 3 verse 4. She has two more verses she quotes. One of them is Ephesians 5.27. Then the church which our Lord at his coming is to receive to himself will be a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It's a perfect church. But notice, please, the last quote. Then she, the church, will look, quote, forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. And she's quoting from what book of the Bible? Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 10. Okay, so there's kind of a tying it in right there. Remember, Song of Solomon is eight chapters. This is taking place at the, the end of chapter six, so toward the end of the book there. One other quotation right here, again, to, to help us understand Song of Solomon. In volume five of the Testimonies, page 81, we read this. 
The time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. Those who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be. This implies there will be those that do this very thing. Those who know present truth. This is a solemn thought. Any of us could fall in that trap. We might be right today, but if we start getting a little bit, I don't know, confident or lazy or some mix of the two, we could, we could be in this camp. So we want to make sure that we keep yielding, asking God to show us what needs uh, reformation in our life. It says here, they will not find it a, a hard matter to yield to the powers that be, rather than subject themselves to derision, insult, threatened imprisonment, and death. Dumb question. Who here wants any of that? I don't want it. And the devil knows we don't want it. And his method is always, like the Bible says he speaks as a dragon. To speak as a dragon is to speak in Satan's um, manner of doing things. He always employs force. Whereas God woos his people into the wilderness, it says in Hosea. So we need to, we have, most of us haven't been in this kind of a, uh, some places in the world, this is, this is life. They know about imprisonment. They know about being threatened with death on a daily basis. They know about being forced. We see the world headed that way, but we're not quite there yet. Still not real to us, but it will be. We need God's grace to be able to face this. It says the contest is between the commandments of God and the commandments of men. In this time, the gold will be separated from the dross in the church. There's dross in the church. True godliness will be clearly distinguished from the appearance and tinsel of it. All who assume the ornaments of, notice interesting language, the ornaments of the what? Sanctuary, but are not clothed with Christ's righteousness, will appear in the shame of their own nakedness, just like Adam and Eve. It goes on and it says, when multitudes of false brethren are distinguished from the true. Isn't that a sad statement? Multitudes of false brethren distinguished from the true? That's how it always is, right? The majority and then the minority. Then the hidden ones will be revealed to view. And with Hosanna's range under the banner of Christ, the deeper the night for God's people, the more brilliant the stars. Satan will sorely harass the faithful, but... In the name of Jesus, they will come off more than conquerors. Then will the church of Christ appear, and here it is again, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. Song of Solomon 6, verse 10. If you remember the previous quote, and you're looking at this one right here, both of these place Song of Solomon 6, verse 10 as applying to um, what part of Earth's history? Yeah, I mean, like the very end. Like this is taking us to the close of the conflict. Probation is in the act of closing. We have the faithful. We have others being shaken out. That's, that's the context, both places where she places this quotation. And this quotation from Song of Solomon is not the very end of the book, but it's very close to the end of the book. And so there we have it, the, the, the banners, the army of banners. Now, One more to guide us so that we can begin to say, okay, now can we formulate a 
hypothesis about where the book is going. One more, Review and Herald, October 12, 1905, paragraph 22. You've probably heard this, although I doubt you know the reference. I certainly didn't know it. We have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and is teaching in our, what? Past history. There you go. Nothing terribly deep here, but sometimes the best questions are simple ones. Would you agree that that is telling us that sometimes it is good to know our history? Dumb question, but yes, that's right. We do need that. And if you're like me, history, I used to hate it. I didn't like the way it was taught. I like most of school, but I couldn't stand that or geography. It was boring. I saw a lot of disconnected data. Later on, I learned, oh, true education. Things are supposed to be practical. There's supposed to be a purpose. I now find history interesting, but I also find it overwhelming. Most history books tend to be fat. My brain is only so big. And the ability to forget seems to increase daily. So, it's good to review. God made us. He knows the results of sin. He knows that we all tend to forget better and better, right? Some of us forget better than others. Well, 6 verse 10, toward the end of the book of Solomon, the church militant, that's a phrase we sometimes use, is meeting the final conflict. Head on, right? So my question for you then is, if we put these thoughts together, could it be that the Song of Solomon might just be prophetic history put to song? You see, we know in some vague terms it seem rather overwhelming what's coming. We know it's bad. It's worse than anything we've ever had. It's a time of trouble such as never has been. All of these things. But until it happens, we don't know what that is, right? People couldn't properly understand Noah's flood until the flood hit. And it was like, oh, yeah, this is really bad, right? Maybe God is saying, let's take a journey. Let's look at a few key points along the way. Look at how I, that is the Lord, have led in the past. And then you will be prepared for like 6 verse 10 and the things afterward. We want to be on the right side. But he says, maybe you need to know these things to get there, to make it through. That's just a hypothesis. Now, the Bible itself even does this. Let me give you an example. The book of Revelation, chapters 12 and 13, this is good Adventist material here. Chapter 12 gives the history of the church in broad strokes. And then in chapter 13, then you get more specifically to the end time. We see the first beast, the papacy. We see it in the 1260 years, and then its work in the very end. And then we also see the United States, which makes its appearance only during the time of the end. But then in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, we have the 144,000 singing this new song, the Bible calls it, the three angels' message, and they're singing it during the final conflict. Hmm. So there is a song that is sung after conflict. So, again, perhaps the Song of Solomon, since it has people at the end of the song meeting the final conflict, maybe those prior chapters have something to do with some history, some conflict. That's the idea. We're just seeing that, yes, there is examples of that in the Bible. Now, that may or may not seem reasonable to you, but even if it does, how do you know where to begin to look in history? For me, I'm not a history expert at all. 
Here's what I did. I said, well, let's just start reading the song and see if there are little bits and pieces that make sense. And if we can match a few pieces and put them in order, maybe we'll get somewhere. Chapter 1, verse 6. The bride, Solomon's bride, says, They made me the keeper of the vineyards. You might think that doesn't look too promising. But I put a few words in yellow. I want you to note these words, and then look what we are told. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. She goes on in verse 7 and says this. And again, this is the bride speaking. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, so speaking to Solomon, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. She's not asking where Solomon himself feeds, but rather where he pastures the flock. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? So on this screen, we have vineyards. This one we have um, shepherding, feeding a flock. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of, we know this verse, lily of the what? Lily of the valleys. Verse 2, as the lily among thorns, so is my companion, which, by the way, can be understood as a shepherdess among the daughters. Okay, so now we're adding valleys. Not only does Solomon describe as feeding his flocks, but apparently she herself is feeding flocks. She's involved in shepherding, okay? And then I think this one's very helpful. Later in the chapter, chapter 2, verse 14, Solomon is speaking to her, and he says, O my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding place of the cliff, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Okay, we just looked at a lot of verses, and you still might be thinking, where are we going? Getting lost. That's okay. I anticipate that. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, I'm going to ask you something. This is a conversation, the whole book, between, largely between Solomon and his bride. There is some backdrop there. Solomon married a wife from Egypt, so it makes sense she's described as dark and everything. I get that. But let me ask you. Do you think, in this conversation we just read the last few verses from, would you say that Solomon's wife, wife of the most powerful king in the world, who herself was the daughter of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, do you think she was tending vineyards? Well, yeah, right. But I mean, like, would you make a guess that probably in, like, day-to-day life, do you think she tended vineyards? Yeah, probably not, right? That's not likely. She probably had other things to tend to. Uh, Do you think that Solomon's wife, do you think Solomon tended his flocks? No, come on, you're king, you've got a lot of things to do. You have people to do that for you. Do you think his wife would tend flocks? No, the Bible tells us, that makes it very clear. Remember, she's Pharaoh's daughter. Genesis 46, 34, Jacob told, or Joseph told his family that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. I don't think when she first met him that she would do that. One, because of her position. Number two, because old habits die hard. I don't think she would go from being Pharaoh's daughter to just tending flocks. It just, it's not how the world works. Do you think that she lived in valleys or mountains? Do you think she was hiding in cliffs? Probably not likely, but the Bible even tells us. 1 Kings 7, 8, where it's describing Solomon building the temple, it says that Solomon made 
not surprisingly, a house for Pharaoh's daughter, in other words, his wife. She presumably lived in the house. So I don't think that she was living in valleys, mountains, or hiding in cliffs. Everything in the Bible is true. But I think we're seeing some things here that suggest that not everything in the Bible or in this song is, shall we say, literally true for the actual Solomon wife couple. There must be another truth, spiritual level here. So here's a question. Does the Bible predict any woman who would live a life like that? Shepherding, trees, valleys, and that sort of thing. Can you think of any woman that the Bible predicts that would do that? Ah, oh, you're thinking, okay, you're thinking prophetically. A woman like a church, okay. Does the, does the Bible predict any church that might live a life described as those verses indicated? Hmm, the remnant? Let's take a look here. Revelation 12, 14 says, And to the woman, this is the church, were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time. That's the 1260 years from the face of the serpent. So the church is pictured as being placed in the wilderness. Revelation still dissembles, but a lot of it really is actually literal. We just need to decode it. Was the church ever put in the wilderness during the 1260 years? I mean, like literally in the wilderness. Yes. Okay. So then it's not, it's at least worth investigating whether, you know, maybe the Song of Solomon is describing that woman. It's possible. By the way, let's think about it. Who was Solomon's father? Okay. So Solomon was the son of David, right? When the crowds were excited the week before Jesus died on the, what some people would call a Palm Sunday, they welcomed him saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. To the what? To the son of? So if Jesus is the son of David and Solomon is the son of David, can we connect the dots? Solomon is a way of referring to whom? Jesus. Hmm, at some level. Therefore, maybe we're on to something. Now, let's see what we're told in the Great Controversy. I'm going to read just a short passage here, and I'm going to highlight certain words, and tell me if you saw these words in the past few slides, and the answer is yes, you did. Page 64, it says, The faith for which for centuries was held and taught by the Waldensian Christians was in marked contrast to the false doctrines put forth from Rome. Their religious belief was founded upon the written word of God, the true system of Christianity. It continues, But those humble peasants... In their obscure retreats, shut away from the world, and bound to daily toil among their flocks and their vineyards, had not by themselves arrived at the truth in opposition to the dogmas and heresies of the apostate church. Theirs was not a faith newly received. Their religious belief was their inheritance from their fathers. They contended for the faith of the apostolic church, the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, before I highlight anything here, did you catch any of the words and say, oh yeah, those are a couple of words we saw. Did you see any words there that jump out at you? Yeah, flocks and what else? Vineyards. Very good. I like it when people are paying attention. Good. Haven't put everyone to sleep. Okay, so we've got flocks and vineyards. Page 65, continuing. Behind the lofty bulwarks of the mountains, in all ages the refuge of the persecuted and oppressed, 
The Waldenses found a hiding place. Do you see some more words? These are not even synonymous words. These are the very words of Scripture. <laughs> you can't tell me this book wasn't inspired. We just need to read it super close. Oops, did I not? There it is. Mountains and, yes, hiding place. By the way, King James has secret place. Before I came across this quote, as I was just going through making my own translation, I put hiding place singular. And I saw that and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Notice this. Uh, same page. The mountains that girded their lowly valleys. You've heard of the valleys of Piedmont, maybe, if you've studied the Waldenses. It's the same word. And then I just about fell off my chair with this one. God had provided for his people, the Waldenses, a what? Yeah, a sanctuary of awful grandeur befitting the mighty truths committed to their trust. Does that not sound like it's talking about the exact same thing that Song of Solomon is? I mean, it's got an awful lot of words that are the same. To me, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, just maybe there's a connection, you know. Let's continue. Back in chapter 1, the bride says, Do not stare at me because I am black, because the sun has scorched me. My mother's sons, it does say sons, it's not just children. My mother's sons were angry with me. They appointed me keeper of the vineyards, yet my very own vineyard I have not kept. Just a little note here on that, that idea of a keeper and kept. A keeper of the vineyards, you, you might kind of get the idea that, well, it's somebody who's supposed to watch over it, kind of like Adam and Eve were to, to uh, keep, dress and keep the garden. And that's not far from the truth, but it's a, it's a different word here. I'll just let you look this up on your own, but I'll just tell you that if you look it up, it's this little word, natar, and I know you don't care it's natar. It's a poetic variant of another word, natsar, and you probably don't care about that either. But here's what you do care about. It means to keep covenant faithfully. Here is one verse so that you know I'm not making up a story. Psalm 25, 10. All the paths of the Lord are faithfulness and truth unto such as keep his covenant. Maybe the bride was appointed as the one who was to show covenant faithfulness by keeping a vineyard of some sort. Hmm. Let's take a look at Greek controversy again. Let's see what it tells us. Same page, page 64. But of those who resisted the encroachments of the papal power, the Waldenses stood foremost. In the very land where popery had fixed its seat, there its falsehood and corruption were most steadfastly resisted. For centuries, the churches of Piedmont maintained their independence. But the time came at last when Rome insisted upon their submission. Notice, insisted. It's always force. It's not willing submission like Christ would have us be to him. After ineffectual struggles against her tyranny, the leaders of these churches reluctantly did what? They reluctantly acknowledged the supremacy of the power to which the whole world seemed to pay homage. When you read what we're told about the Maldenses, they, they are cited because you usually think because they're faithless. As the world was going after Rome, they said no. And they risked their lives and struggle after struggle, bloodshed after bloodshed, they remained faithful. There came a time, though, and I've read it here and I've read it in Wiley, too. Fascinating reading if you've got the time, where they began to say, this is awful. I mean, what are we going to do? Are we ever, we just need a break. 
And they began to capitulate a little bit by a little bit. And they kind of justified their conscience. They would go into the, the, uh, the Catholic churches and they didn't want to go. They would go, but as they would cross the threshold, they would, they would mutter under their breath about, you know, you know, den of thieves and iniquity. They would try to sort of just soothe their conscience by saying, well, we hate it. We're just going along because we sort of have to. They weren't keeping their own vineyard. There were some, however, who refused to yield to the authority of Pope or Prelate. They were determined to maintain their allegiance to God and to preserve the purity and simplicity of their faith. A separation took place. Those who adhered to the ancient faith now withdrew. Some, forsaking their native Alps, raised the banner of truth in foreign lands. Others retreated to the secluded glens and rocky fastnesses of the mountains, and there preserved their freedom to worship God. For those interested, there's a more uh, detailed account there in Wiley. But continuing on, we pointed out at the last verse of Song of Solomon, verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17, it says that the beams of our house are cedar and rafters of fir or pine. And we just pointed out this shows this is sanctuary language. And it is. But guess what? If you do a little Google search and you say, you know, because inquiring minds want to know, I said, please tell me what trees grow in the Alps. Well, guess what I found out? You might already know this, but what kinds of trees grow in cold climates? Well, not only are they using Solomon's Temple, but yes, these trees grow in the Alps. Pictures worth a thousand words. There's the uh, cedars right there. I don't know if the pines are there, but they are. Hmm. Okay. Song of Solomon 1 verse 6. My mother's children were angry with me. Literally, sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. Well, it turns out, while the Waldenses are beginning to kind of wane in their fidelity, God raised up some other people at the time of the Reformation. And it turns out, they got wind of each other. The Waldenses were wondering, is there anybody out there that's faithful? And they sent forth some, um, I don't know, diplomats, I guess we'll call them. They went out, and they were able to meet up with certain people. And there is one gentleman here by the name of Echolampadius. You'll read about him, too. And here's what he wrote them. He said, we are informed that the fear of persecution has caused you to dissemble, that means to lie, and to conceal your faith. There is no concord between Christ and Belial. You commune with unbelievers. You take part in their abominable masses in which the death and passion of Christ are blasphemed. Pretty gentle, huh? I'd like to get that. Be like, thank you. Whew. I know your weakness, but it becomes those who have been redeemed with the blood of Christ to be more courageous. It is better for us to die than to be overcome by temptation. Revelation 12, they love not their lives unto what? Death. And he's saying... You're not in that. You have fallen. And you can read that in Wiley, right there. Volume 2, page 446. The good news is that people who are humble, even when they fall, they accept rebuke. And October 12, 1532, here's the following. The Waldenses convened a synod. They took the rebuke to heart. After six days, they produced their own confession of faith. They stopped attending Mass. They no longer recognized priests as ministers of Christ. They rebuilt their own churches and in 1535 published the scriptures in French. Wow. 
A friend that gives a rebuke is a friend indeed. God spoke through Echolampadius there. So, let's take a look at the march of history here. As we go forth from that point, at the end of Song of Solomon, chapter 2, Solomon says this, O my dove that art in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding place of the cliff, let me seek your countenance, let me hear your voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. I doubt Solomon was saying that to his literal wife. It doesn't, that doesn't make a lick of sense. But could it be that Jesus is calling the church that was hiding in the mountain fastnesses? Let's see. Well, let's check it out. The very next verse. Song Solomon 2.15 says, Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. I used to read that and think, what in the world are we talking? Now we're talking about foxes. We're going all over the place here. Look in the Bible for foxes. Foxes, good or bad, in the Bible. Yeah, you're thinking bad, right? Herod, that fox, right? But maybe to, to shed some light on this, if you look in Lamentations chapter 2, 16 through 18, it says, Woe unto us that we have sinned because of the mountain of Zion, which is desolate, the foxes walk upon it. Ah, the foxes cause a problem for God's people. They make it desolate. Ezekiel 13, 4 says, Oh, Israel, your prophets are like the foxes in the deserts. Hmm. Apparently, Song of Solomon, when it says, Take us the foxes that spoil the vines, it's saying, Get rid of sin and sinners. The vine is a representation of Jesus and his people. They're getting rid of sin. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feeds among the lilies. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. I used to look at this and think, now, great, now we've got deer jumping on mountains. You know, I mean, this, again, does this honestly sound like Solomon and his literal wife? I mean, if you said that to somebody, they'd say, what? It, it doesn't make sense. But if we have a people that have been rebuked for sin, they have repented, and Jesus is calling them. And there's a putting away of sin. Even though we might say, well, why is she describing her husband like a deer? Nevertheless, bounding on the hills, could it be that she's eager to see him, for him to come? Maybe you can kind of put the pieces together here. She's eager for Solomon to come. Solomon, the son of David, so that's Jesus, right? Well, let's see. The very next verse, Psalm 3, verse 1. By night on my bed, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. The Bible says, seek and you shall find, right? But there are some places where Jesus himself says, you will seek and you will not find. She couldn't find Solomon. I wonder why not. Well, in verse 4, the same chapter, it says, it was but a little while that I passed from them, the watchman. But I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her that conceived me. Hmm. Notice it says a little time passed. Now, if you know your prophetic history, you might make a connection. And if you don't, see if this fits. A little time passes and then Solomon is brought into the Chamber. Remember the bedroom we said? J.N. Loughborough had this to say in his book, Great Second Advent Movement. 
Hiram Edson of Port Gibson, New York, told me that the day after the passing of the time in 1844, great disappointment, as he was praying behind the shocks of corn in a field, the Spirit of God came upon him in such a powerful manner that he was almost smitten to the earth. And with it came an impression, the sanctuary to be cleansed in heaven. And we know the story. They studied things out. The book of Hebrews was helpful. They learned that, oh, I see. It's the sanctuary. That's where he was coming to. He wasn't coming to earth, right? But were the people, even though they had a misunderstanding of what it meant for Jesus to come, were they eager for Jesus to come as October was coming? October 22? Mm-hmm. Was there confession putting away of sin? Mm-hmm. Read these two verses yourself. We're almost done here. Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. Don't get bogged down in the details. There's a lot of details. We're skipping all that. Just read those two verses and answer this. What does it seem to be describing to you? If you have read it, just kind of raise your hand so I can kind of gauge and we're not just waiting around. Okay, a few here. Okay. Anybody got a thought or does it just seem like a big old mystery to you? Coming out of the wilderness, yes. Okay. That's right. Yeah, isn't that kind of interesting? Beholding a bed. There was that whole chamber thing, right? Hmm. What did you say? 2,300 days and what now? Ah, okay. I think we're following along here. Something about maybe the 2,300 days in the most holy place. The inner chamber of the sanctuary is the most holy place. October 22, 1844, good Bible scholars, where did Jesus go to? Most holy place. To begin the work of what? Atonement, coming together as one. It's also the work of judgment, right? The end time judgment is God's marriage with his people. It commenced then, right? In verse 7, depending on what translation you have, apparently the best idea for verse 7 is it refers to a portable couch. Did Jesus move from one apartment to the other? Mm-hmm. Verse 9 is a royal litter. But look, Song of Solomon 3, verse 11, it tells us what's in view. Go forth, O you daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals or wedding, and in the day of the gladness of his heart. Wedding began October 22, 1844. As far as the mother... Galatians 4.26 says, New Jerusalem, which is above, is the mother of us all. It's the sanctuary. The crown is worn by the high priest. Hmm. Did Jesus begin a special work as high priest October 22, 1844? Of course, Day of Atonement, work of judgment. Last verse, Song of Solomon 4, verse 9. We'll leave it here. Jesus says about his bride, You have ravished my heart. What is to ravish? We don't usually use that word anymore. He's just absolutely just taken with her, right? You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one of your eyes, with one chain of your neck. Don't worry about all the details right there. Just notice that there was Jesus coming to the wedding. Several verses later, he's talking about how he's just so taken with his bride. He is eager for the whole thing to be consummated, to come to a close. Now, we're going to leave it there because there's more. But we'll leave it there, sort of a cliffhanger, as it were. 
Let me just ask this question. Who here would love for Jesus to save you? I am ravished by you. You ravish my heart. All right? That's what I want. Now, there's four more chapters in Song of Solomon, so it doesn't quite get to the end immediately. There's more. But we'll leave it right there. If that is your decision, I just ask that you would uh, close with me here in prayer before we have our closing song here. Father in heaven, I know we've covered some ground here, and this is a tricky book to present. I hope that things have been clear. I pray that we can at least get the big picture that you have had a people throughout history that you have guarded and protected who did what they knew to uphold your truth. And when they began to get lax, you didn't cast them off, but you rebuked them knowing that they would accept it and answer the call. And we thank you that you have begun the final work, the work of making us one with you. The work is not over. We have not yet arrived, but you're getting to that point. It is hastening on. Thank you that you have given us a glimpse of what is to come. It will be very hard times, but you've given us a history that tells us how your people have endured and how even the bad persecutions they've had served to strengthen their resolve. I pray that that will come to our mind as things begin to get more tense, more uncomfortable as we hurtle toward the end here. I pray that that will give us courage and we will not despair. And that knowing this, even if we're not masters of history, but if we understand the parts that you draw our attention to, we will be able to share word and season with others and very quickly tell them, look, this is how it's worked in the past. God never changes. This is how it's going to work in the future. I pray that we can encourage each other that we can keep our eyes firmly fixed on you as you give us your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.